Hello, Deal Scout listeners. This is Ruben Amar, co-founder and co-CEO of Forum Brands. At Forum Brands, we buy Amazon FBA businesses in categories that consumers love, and we build them into leading omni-channel brands. Are you looking to sell your business? We guarantee a no-hustle, quick, and efficient close. Our transition team is staffed with very experienced people and the right resources to guide you through a seamless exit process. We offer lucrative exit opportunities that allow entrepreneurs like you to share part of the upside as we build a long-term legacy for the brand you build from scratch. If you want to learn more information, please visit us at forumbrands.com. Good day, fellow dealmakers. Welcome to The Deal Scout. This show is so fun for me because I get to travel around talking with dealmakers, hearing their story, and then talking deals, right? So the mission and purpose of this show for you, the audience, is to put deals and dealmakers together. So if you hear one of our guests and you're like, hey, that sounds interesting, their contact information will be in the show notes below so you can connect with them directly and do a deal. So with that, on today's show, we're going to have a conversation with a guy who said, I had a short but very intense career history in the world of investing, buying stuff. So, you know, from that, I want to learn. So we brought Ruben, one of our friends, Ruben, onto the show to share his story. Ruben, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Josh. Great to be here. I've been following your podcast for quite a while. So I feel, I feel humbled and excited to be invited finally. <laughs> we did it. Yay. Finally, we got I, you on the mic. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. All right. So Ruben, uh, let's say you and I are hanging out in a, a coffee shop or something like that. And, and, uh, someone comes up and they go, Hey, I'm I'm Josh. Who are you? And what do you do? You know, that's how typically people start their conversation. So how do you yeah. typically respond? Wow. Uh, so it depends whether we are in Paris or in New York, because the time I have allocated to that is different. But let's say we are in the US. I'll try to be efficient here. Okay. Um, so I'm Ruben. Um, I'm today one of the three co-founders and also co-CEO of Forum Brands. Um, I come from Israel. So I grew up in Israel for 13 years, uh, from zero to 13. Um, learned a lot of things about Israelis that people in the business world know, uh, and moved to France when I was uh, 13 years old. I got my degree there uh, and in engineering. But then, you know, uh, I had I had the choice of either going to do like a traditional engineering, um, you know, work or go to the dark side in investment banking. And eventually, I went to the dark side. Uh, so I moved to. I moved to London uh, in uh, 2015, uh, was working in uh, M&A in the telecom media and technology team in Credit Suisse, um, stayed there for a little bit over a year, worked on very interesting IPOs, uh, M&A transactions. Most exciting thing I've done there was really the IPO of Zalando, uh, which was you know, one of the you know, early, early, early players in the e-commerce space, uh, which had huge success. Um, afterwards, I decided to move to the investment world, which, which, which was always been, which always been the most interesting thing I wanted to do with my life. Um, so I joined a company called TA Associates. TA Associates, for those who don't know what it, who they are, it's one of the oldest and, uh, you know, largest growth equity investors. And growth equity basically means investing in companies that are generally founder owned, family owned. Uh, that are in their growth stage, i.e. they are becoming profitable, they are growing pretty nicely, and they need help from someone else to just come in and help them expand internationally through M&A or through 
you know, building teams. And, you know, TA really found this spot in the early 70s uh, to get in at that, at that stage. And they've been super successful. Um, and I was working from the London office. Um, and my job was to cover consumer and technology companies in, in Europe, mainly in France and also Israel. Um, I stayed there for, you know, four years, a little bit less than four years. I've done many different deals. My biggest, biggest, biggest job was working side by side with founders. So that was the early days of me getting, uh, I would say, um, infected by the founder disease, if you want. Yeah. Uh, and I worked very closely with them. I helped them do a lot of like buy and build, which we'll talk about in the in the context of forum. And you know, I worked on probably 25 to 30 MA acquisitions to help them get into new countries from like France to the US, from France to Latin America, from France to Southeast Asia through MA. I've really seen the value out of this buy and build strategy. So eventually, after three and a half years, after sitting on seven different boards, after doing you know 30 deals, um, after being very involved with TA's you know portfolio management team. I decided, you know what? It's time for me to take the risk and potentially become a founder. And where is the best place in the world to try to be a founder? I'll ask you, Josh. What do you think? The USA. Exactly. <laughs> so I said goodbye to the old continent and hello to the new and fresh continent, which is the USA. And I actually moved to California, uh, where I took my MBA at Stanford. Uh, and, you know, while at Stanford, really met great people. That's the whole point of the MBA there. It's like meet people from different backgrounds that can challenge you, that think differently. It's all about like changing the world type of of, of, uh, of experience, but really much met uh, my current two co-founders. You know, it was COVID and we, we can talk about the story, but the TLDR that I met the two of them, uh, we were all very passionate about consumer and consumer building. We wanted to meet entrepreneurs where they are. And li literally what was happening during the pandemic, because we started the company while we were at school, literally in the early months of COVID, we just realized that, you know, COVID, but also e-commerce as a whole has allowed millions of entrepreneurs to be entrepreneurs. While if you go back to the 80s and even the 90s, in order to be an entrepreneur, you had to have like a degree, you had to go to a certain school. You have to have access, a privileged access to a network of people to finance you. What Amazon has done so well for what it's worth is that it has decreased the barriers so much that any person around the world with a computer and more importantly with the hustler mindset can just become a millionaire entrepreneur. And we were fascinated by that. And we, we, we decided that like, that's the world in which we want to build something. Um, and the something is called now Forum Brands. Uh, we started a company in July 2020, Incorporated. Uh, we raised, um, you know, multiple round of, of, of fundraising. The first one from NFX, uh, which is like one of the largest seed investors in California. Um, that was in September 2020. We then built the team. We hired our first employee in November 2020, uh, bought our first business, our first brand, in um you know january 2021 um and we did our series a in may 2021 and since then we've grown very nicely we moved the office to new york uh and uh you know it's incredible very energetic city that's why we moved here um and yeah now we have uh close to 100 employees 
uh, and the vibe is amazing and we're all very excited about what we are building. And so that that's the the story. Got it. You got infected with the founder bug, right? Like what a dangerous bug to get infected with. That is oh, far more dangerous than any other bug out there. So I agree with you. <laughs> how the how old are you, man? You've done a lot of deals and a lot of cool <laughs> opportunities. How old are you? I'm uh, 31. Okay, uh, got it. A yeah, very so, short but intense deal making exactly. history. Now that's how you described yourself before we hit record is, you know, short, but very intense. What was, what do you mean by what was intense about it? Yeah. So as you probably saw from my description, I moved around quite a lot, right? I never stayed in a, in a city or a place for more than like five years. Um, I, I loved moving around. And the reason why I say it's short is because I consider myself still pretty, not, it's not about like being young. It's more about being humble with what I've learned with my life, I think I should I, sh I should be learning all my life and considering what I, I need to learn still in my life, it's so early in my career. So that's for the short piece. The intense piece is just that like I'm always fascinated by what is available out there in terms of knowledge and connections. I literally built my life, whether it is personal and more importantly professional, through meetings, through meeting people. And the one thing that is important when you have this mindset is that it's not only knowing that you will meet people, it's to seize the opportunity when you meet people. That's a very big difference, right? Yeah. You can just meet people and say, oh, it was nice meeting them. Maybe one day they will be helpful. And there's another mindset, which is literally my mindset, the way I live on a daily basis is that, wow, these people, I need to connect with them because one day or another... I'll do something with them. I don't know what, I don't know when, but I know for that there's a reason why I met them at this particular time of my, of my life that in the future, whether it is short, medium or long future, I'll do something with them. And so that's the intense part because you always need to be thinking, living your uh, meetings every day. Yeah. This is, this is really interesting. Um, but be, I, I definitely want to dive in there. So like, let's place a pin in that topic about meeting people and seizing the opportunity. Super important. Before we do that, 13 years old in Israel, like what is, what, what would you, what's your national origin? Like you have a very unique accent and you spend, <laughs> you know, time everywhere. So you probably picked up a blend of accents from all over and I just have no clue. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's so funny that you say that because uh, every time I meet someone, they like, oh, you look French. You sound kind of like Latin American. Um, uh, you have the face of like a European guy. Yeah. Uh, and when you talk, you are as aggressive as an Israeli. So, uh, <laughs> it's very confusing, I must say. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it depends on like how I think about things, but like my, my mental mindset is very much of, uh, you know, an Israeli person, just because I think what's what I learned in my first 13 years, it's, I, I can summarize in one word, and yeah. maybe you would know it. It's something that it's in, it's coming from the, the Yiddish uh, language, which it's called chutzpah. Chutzpah. Uh, so yeah, people know that. People <laughs> know that in the US, you know, if you have listeners around the world, they probably don't know that. Yeah. But chutzpah basically means being audacious, mm. audacity, right? Um, and I think that's how I've lived my life. 
And, you know, when you, when you work with me, when you hang out with me, you can see that through how I interact with people. And that's really how I could define myself from my Israeli origins. And I left when I was 13. But the way they educate you in Israel, it's to never be scared from failure and always see life in a way that is opportunistic. And the more you fail, the closer you get to uh, being successful. Um, and, 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 and that's something that is pretty powerful in Israel. That's why Israel now is one of the you know, strongest tech hubs in the world while being a tiny, tiny, tiny country of five, six million people. There's a reason for that. And that's the chutzpah is this one thing that teaches you since you're a kid. So the more you fail, the closer you get to actual success. So I'm I'm probably really close because I have failed a lot. Okay, so I love this. Um, in 1998, where you, you were in Israel because you were probably born 91 ish. So you were in Israel yeah. in 1990, the the 50 year jubilee, right? Yeah. I my whole family went to Israel to uh, to check it out. There we had a a, a group wow. of like 50 family members that that came and and, and hung out. So we might have. We might have crossed paths. I mean, if you were uh, 98, I was like eight years old, uh, not even. Uh, and and so if you saw me with uh, like handling fireworks in the street, I was the guy. I was this kid. <laughs> you were the fire. You're the firework dealer, right? Awesome. I, I was that one. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can talk about my experience in sales, but yeah, uh, it started very early in the fireworks. <laughs> well, talk to us about that, because I, I think that that... Because you talked, you said the hustler mindset bit by the yeah. entrepreneurial bug, but you, it sounds like on the, on the streets, you, you also were an entrepreneur. What, what did that look like? Okay. Yeah. So this is, uh, let me tell you, maybe you like stepping up a little bit. I think that being, having sales, um, sales skills is maybe one of the most important professional skills everyone should develop, no matter what they do, whether you are an R and D you know, uh, when you do, when you are like an R and D engineer, or whether you're properly like a software salesman, you need to know how to sell. Because whether you sell your project, your product, yourself, you need to know how to sell. And so, I've learned that within the hard way. And let me tell you a quick story. Um, so when I was 21, um, my English was really poor. Like, I couldn't speak proper English. So I was like, how can I learn English very fast in a, in a most efficient way? And I get to know this opportunity to go to Fort Lauderdale in America. It was the first time I traveled to the US. And I got an, a, like a job, which was being a cosmetic salesman in the mall of Fort yeah. Lauderdale. So it's, I was the guy. Which mall? Was the, uh, Sawgrass the Mall? mall of, I think it was that one. Yeah. yeah. It's huge. It's huge. I used to ride my bike there. No way. Yes. We crossed. You're following me. Okay. Sorry. I I interrupted you. you. Uh, (laughs) It was 2011. Yeah. um, And you remember in those malls, you have those kiosks in the middle. Yeah. One of those kiosks was me. And I was literally selling Dead Sea Cosmetics products. And my work was literally to, you know, annoy people that that were walking on the mall and trying to sell them those random cosmetics products like you know nail kits, you know lotion, mud, um, and it was so hard mentally because for the first two weeks I got 
probably a thousand no's and no yes, right? Like no, no, you bother me, no. It's constantly failing and failing and failing. So after two weeks, I came to my boss, who was not selling, but he was he was there. And I told him, look, man, uh, his name is Tomer. Now he lives, he lives in my in in uh in Miami, in, no, actually in Tampa. But um I told him, Tomer, I cannot deal with that anymore. Like I'm constantly failing. I've been like up 11 hours every day for two weeks. I didn't earn any buck because we were only paid on commission. What am I doing here? Like, I'm going to go back and, and, and that's it. And then he told me the most important sentence I will always remember in my life. I should even write it out on my wall. He told me, Ruben, listen, you need to understand that failure is part of the journey. And if you really believe that the more you get no's, the bigger the yes will be, you'll be successful. And, you know, me, 21 years old, I, I look at him and I'm like, what are you talking about? Book me a flight back to Israel. <laughs> yeah. and, and he told me, Ruben, give it a try. Believe it inside of you when you go to work tomorrow and you'll see the results. And three days later, I did my first ever sale with a woman who was in wheelchair, couldn't speak in word in English. I was speaking no word in Spanish. And I sold her like $300 worth of product. Why? Why? Because I believe. And when you believe that success is, is going to come, everyone can sit in your eyes and everyone can see the energy. And that's how you become a better salesperson. And if you can remember that every day in your life, life will be very different from everyone that is listening. So powerful. Um, the thing that I think is so important for for us to hear is that your boss believed in you. Sometimes if, if we don't have someone that, if we don't believe in ourselves, sometimes we need that boss, that friend, that mentor that looks at, at us and say, you've got this, I believe in you. Yeah. Right? Because I, I think that sometimes, many times, especially after massive failures in my life, I've been bankrupt, been on food stamps, I've been in venture capital and private equity, but I've also had to work on the back of a moving truck to put diapers on my baby's butts, right? Wow. So lots and lots and lots of failure. And when I failed massively and I, I, I lost belief in myself, it took someone looking at me and go, you've got this. The amount of no's, more no's equals one or you know, a bigger yes. Man, let's, let's do this. Oh, I love this. Thank you for bringing this up. Now that you're working near founders, you get to look at them and say, I believe in you. Let's work through the nose. Let's get through that. When you have someone sitting across from you, how do you know if someone has what it takes when you're looking at them and you, and you go, okay, Josh, I believe in you. Like what, what do you look for in a, in a founder? Yeah. Um, so I will talk about with the lens of when I was a VC investor, because I think right now in forum, what we do is we talk with founders who want to sell their business. So it's a little bit different. It's more about whether we can believe in what they've built. So it's a little bit different mindset. I'll address your question because I also do some VC investors. So I meet a lot of founders, you know, as an angel investors, mm -hmm. um, myself personally, but also I did some VC work back in, you know, a year or two years ago. So I think the biggest thing that I look at when I see founders is their ability or the way they show up that no matter what happens, they will never give up. And so this is important because it's 
much better to have a great founder in a large market with an idea that is not fully set versus a founder that has not a very strong mentality in a market that already exists with the idea that is incredible because if the guy if both of them fail you know that the first guy will find another idea in a second this first entrepreneur will fight his or her way to turn it around and pivot and so i much rather invest in in a founder that has the mentality of like you know taking the failure in a positive way and trying to move fast around it because we live in such a connected world that great ideas are in every corner of the street people are smart you, you can hear great ideas everywhere what makes a difference between a great entrepreneur and someone who will not make it in my opinion is their ability to challenge their thoughts and be able to move fast if things are not going in the right direction and just accept failure and say okay if that angle didn't work let's find another angle some people just remain so focused on the failure that they just cannot pivot and so that's where failure becomes you know consistent and that's where entrepreneurs don't make it that's really what i'm trying to look at when i met entrepreneurs yeah hutspa you're looking for hutspa right their ability yeah. to go all right i failed i might need to take a knee for a minute but i'm back in the game i'm going to pivot i'm going to run i'm always going to i'm always going to fight yeah so talk to us about a time where you got so the, the, you know you're selling how in the world did you go from selling cosmetics <laughs> to investment banking vc but you know all this stuff how in the world did that transfer happen well, I, you know, when I was selling cosmetics, it was just like a summer experience. So I was going back to school after uh, university. Yeah. Uh, I did a bunch of different works. You know, I, I, I don't come from like a very privileged background. You know, my family never really gave me any you know, money to go on holiday. So I had to basically do a bunch of things to get some bucks and be able to hang out with my friends and, uh, and meet people. Because I knew that like it doesn't come, it doesn't grow on the trees. You have to go and you know seed the tree yeah. and so um you know that was one experience i was a waiter many times i was a private mathematic mathematics teacher i was selling surfboards when i was 13 i mean i did a bunch of things just to get the extra buck to be able to um you know you know enjoy some of my childhood in a way yeah. um and then and then i really wanted to get into the finance world and so it's through my school and people i met that i got to to, to those places. I think everybody in the world should have to be a waiter at, at one point in their life because I agree with you. it is I one of the toughest you. jobs ever. People don't realize that. <laughs> they don't realize People that. People don't realize that. Oh my God. Yeah. Opening the bottle of wine in one of the most fancy, you know, French brasserie in Paris yeah. with like one hand. Oh yeah. man, how many bottles have I broken? Uh, oh, wow. uh, if, if, if this guy here it listens today, I'm really sorry. Probably <laughs> broke like 10 bottles before I managed to open one. Yeah. Yeah. I still have nightmares and it's been 20 years or so. I still have nightmares of being triple set on a Sunday and with, with, you know, people waiting out the door. I still have nightmares about it. It's crazy. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. So, uh, with this, you said one of the things that people must be able to do entrepreneurs and deal makers is they, they need to be able to challenge their thoughts. Now, 
not coming from a background of privilege, right? And you had to take where you were and and turn this. Now you have a hundred people that, you know, a hundred founders that you're working or uh, employees and you're building, you know, some pretty cool stuff and uh, you guys are doing pretty well. There are some thoughts that you had to go back and rewire in your own life and your own growth. What were some of those major hurdles from not coming from a background of privilege, but creating now wealth for you? What were some things that you had to challenge in your own mental thoughts? Yeah, it's a great question. It's it's actually something uh, I'm trying to work on on a daily basis. So it's interesting when you don't come from a privileged background, it's almost like you're always trying to get more and more and more. And in a way, every step that you overcome, you don't feel satisfaction. Or at least you don't feel that you should be feeling satisfaction because there's always more. And so that's the sort of like issue when you come, when you're trying to, you know, build your place in the world, not coming from a privileged world is that you're pushing yourself, which can be an advantage because it's a driver, but at some point it it can still harm you because you're never really satisfied with what you're building and with your life. And so that's something I had to really combat from my, I would say, backgrounds of not being from a privileged background um, or, or like family, because in a way, like I need to be happy when I come to the office. I need to show energy to my you know, to the 100 employees we manage. I need to show the dream. And if you're not satisfied with your life, you cannot show up well. And you have 100 souls that rely on you. You're the captain of, of the ship. And if they don't believe in you, whether it is co- from a communication perspective, but also physically from your energy, yeah. people will not work hard to help build the ship. And so I think that was the thing I really had to like work on, which was just be happy. Be satisfied with what you've built already. It's already good. Of course, you can do more, but you'll always be able to do more. That's the beauty of life. There's always going to be more you can do. But at some point, you need to step back, look at your journey, and just feel happy and satisfied because that also can help You know, in being a better better person. Yeah. Ah, so good, dude. Um, so I want to know how you, you started making those changes. And what was it that, sparked where you woke up one day and you're like, man, I need to, I need to grow. I need to do some personal growth here. What was that moment? Yeah, I think it was, uh, it's interesting because, uh, I haven't talked about my, my, about my co-founders, uh, which I should, because they are a big part of my life today. <laughs> uh, I, I work with two great, great co-founders, Brenton Holland and Alex Kopko. Brenton come from uh, New York. He's American. Uh, he worked at McKinsey in Chicago uh, and then worked in a private equity firm called Cove Hill Partners in, in Boston, was their first employee. So very, very smart dude. Uh, we shared a co-CEO together. Alex uh, is coming from, um, you know, uh, he was he, he grew up in uh, South Dakota. So like a real, real big hustler, really big hustler. He did much more crazy experiences than what I did in my life. Trust me. Uh, so you should interview him at some point, but cool. um, he's, he has 10 years of experience in e-commerce, both from Target and Amazon. Um, and he's really like the, the, you know, the e-commerce technology guru in the company. But the TLDI is that we were very complimentary, both from experience, but also from a personality perspective, very complimentary. 
And that's the beauty of building a company with complementary co-founders. Mm-hmm. So important because you don't want to have a mirror of yourself sitting with you in building a company. You just don't want to do that because it's not efficient. And more importantly, forget about efficiencies, building a company, it's like a yo-yo, right? Like it's literally, you have days where you're happiest day in the world. You have, you have, you have days where you feel like you're failing and you need to go through those ups and downs all the time. If you don't have someone that has a complementary personality to yours, it's very hard to balance it. And I find the most resources with my co-founders because, and, and to answer your question was like when we did the, the series A, you know, it was a great milestone for the company. Like let's, let's, let's be very honest. Not a lot of companies get to series A. And so they were the happiest guys ever. And I was happy, but I was thinking about, oh, maybe we could have done, I've gone better terms. Oh, maybe we could have raised more. Or like, I was thinking about those things that at the end of the day, don't matter too much once you get through uh, the series A. And, and when I talked to them about this feeling, they looked at me and say, Ruben, you need to be more happy. You need to be more satisfied. I know it's, a, it's one of your strengths that you are ambitious and a hustler, but you also need to be ha- like satisfied with what you have. And since that moment, the tipping, the tipping point, I started working on that. Thanks to my co-founders. Shout out to the co-founders. Um, it is shout out. so vital to have team people around you because entrepreneurship could be super lonely. And, and I've had some very public failures. And the first thing I want to do is retreat. I want to suffer in silence and in solitude. When I'm having a rough day, right? Or a deal goes south or deal goes wild. My business partner is extremely optimistic. I'm, I'm, t- I'm, I'm very optimistic, very outgoing, but I also, uh, my pendulum swings pretty heavy. I'm a, I'm more an emotional. Ext- I'm, Hey, <laughs> yes, I'm more I'm emotional. More emotional as well. I'm more emotional as well. I'm very business emotional. I, I am very emotional. It's especially, let me, let me share this with you. And I'd love your thoughts on this is, uh, when I invest in people, I love people. My mission on this earth is to invest in people right? Like money. I'm, I'm not extremely money motivated. Now my investors want me to be right. But like, I am, <laughs> I am very people and mission motivated and we've invested in people and it didn't work out for whatever reason. I take that personal and that hurts. And my business partner scoops me up and he's like, come on, buddy, there's more out there. Let's go get them. You know, like he's, he used to be a race car driver. So he's like, let's freaking go. Oh, yeah. That's that's great. So I, I need that. Um, so you mentioned something and I got to get this from you is because you're very, you and I could be like twin brothers. I might be your older brother somehow. Um, For sure. We have, we have, we have the same blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I have a hard time being satisfied and content. I am massively ambitious. So how do you manage being satisfied, content, ambition, right? Like, how do you manage that? Because I am not a very balanced yeah. person. Nobody said Josh is a balanced person. I've never heard that in my life. How do you do that? Yeah. Uh, great, great, great question. Um, I would say it's a combination of three things. Uh, one, meditation. Uh, I've started doing meditation a year ago, roughly. Every day, 20 minutes when I wake up, helped a lot. 
to self-reflect on your life. So it gives you the power of breathing and gives you the power of just disconnecting from your, you know, very, very strong driven ambition and just thinking about life, trees, light, birds, start listening to like those noises. It's, it's kind of like interesting. I, I was not, be- I, I could not believe in that. My mindset, my mental model was not believing in meditation, but then I started doing it and it helped a lot. One, yep. two, uh, walks. So when I feel that this emotion is coming up where I'm like upset about something or I'm too excited about something, or I feel like I could do more. I just go for like a 10, 15 minutes walk around the corner on my own. Don't take my phone and just when it's sunny and not not snowing in New York, just looking up in the sky and just walking around. That's number two. And number three, which is kind of like the result of number one and number two, Sometimes, you know, and I'm sure you, you, you work a lot on a desk, right? Um, sometimes we, we, the, the, the posture of how we work is by being very like uh, leaning in the desk, right? Like we are so invested that we were leaning in the desk. Sometimes what I do, and it, I don't do it often, but like once a week or once every two or three weeks, I literally just throw myself out, literally throw myself out of the desk as far as I can. And then I look around and I'm like, my life is not too bad. My life is not too bad. And then I go back. So those are the three things I do that help me uh, when I have those feelings. But look, I'm, I'm, Josh, I'm still working on that. It's not the perfect situation, solution. But in the last, call it six months to a year, it helped me appreciate a little bit more what I do. I still haven't lost my hustler. Uh, I still haven't lost my ambitions. But I can balance things a little bit more, which has been helpful. Yeah. Meditation walks and pausing for a moment for moments of, of gratitude and thankfulness. That's, that's, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Gratitude. Um, walks. This is, there's massive research on, on walking. There's a Latin phrase and I'm going to totally butcher it. And someone's going to throw me some hate mail, whatever it's, it's ambulata solvator or something like that. It's the solution comes from walking. Socrates did it. Plato did it. Jesus did it. All these people, they would walk and talk or, or just walk and, and spend time. And even just like walking around a lake, walking, there is so much power in, in that time yeah. of walking. Yeah. Um, I, I, I went from not walking at all a year ago to doing 15,000 steps a day. Uh, and of course, there was like some health reasons because, you, you know, I wanted to be a little bit more healthy, but also because it just helped my mental uh, balance, you know, in a way that I was not expecting that. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so good. How many languages do you speak? So fluently, fluently English, French, Hebrew. I speak some Spanish and Italian. That's pretty cool. All right. Do this. What, you pick a language, and, and I want you to do an intro. Say, welcome to the deal, Scout, or something like that, in any language you choose other than English. Okay. Uh, um, I'm going to do it in Hebrew. Okay. I think it's more, more, oh, I more, love that. more uncommon than the yeah. other. Um, so, Todashe Gatem, la episode of Josh Wilson, who is one of the deal makers who is in the world. 
יש לו פודקאסט שאלפי אנשים משתמשים ורואים, ואני מקווה שכולם ייהנו מהאפיזוד שלכם איתי, וג'וש הוא הבן אדם הכי טוב בעולם, אז תהנו. Exactly. I have no clue what you said, but it, it sounded awesome. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. All right. So, oh man, this is so good. We haven't, the, the reason I love the show, we haven't even talked much about deals, right? We haven't even talked yeah. about the business yet, but there's yeah. so much depth that you've provided for us and I'm thankful for that. But yeah. now we got to dive into deals a little bit. Okay. So yeah. you've experienced many different types of deals. deals and many different types of participation in deals yeah from the investment side right you 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 started out as i'm going to be an engineer and then you're like i'm going to the dark side investment banking right in, in this what kind of like paint a picture for the different types of investment groups right you mentioned private equity family uh investment banking you mentioned venture capital angel investing like you've touched a lot of different yeah sides Paint a picture of maybe of, of the ones that you participated in, what they are in, and how do they participate in business? Yeah. Okay. So I'll try to be uh, as concise as possible. So there are, first of all, there are two different ways of investing. First of all, you have the, what I would call like the VC money, and then you have the more traditional private equity money. On the VC side, basically, uh, I've participated in pre-seed, seed, Series A, Series B, Series C, until IPO. Um, those investments are called uh, primary money investing, which is basically what does it mean, and Josh would know that. Um, it's, there's a, an investor who will you know, value your business with a certain number uh, based on the investors' belief on your business, in you, uh, on your KPIs, of course, on the market, on the economy, et cetera. And they will inject new money. So they will inject, that's what we call it primary because it's an additional cash that is injected into the business. You as a founder at this stage, do not take any money out. You will not cash out anything. So this is done in order for you to be able to grow the business further because you need cash to grow your business naturally. Um, and, and, and so as you go and grow and grow, those series ABC means that like, you reach certain scales. And the more you reach scale, the higher valuation you can get and the less dilution you can have, naturally. Um, the one thing that is important in that type of investment is that, you know, when you have a family business, this is typically not something you want to go with because um, the VCs will impose a certain speed of execution. And because they have like certain, um, I would say, constraints with their own investors, they need to like show... What we call mark to market or like a markup on, a, on an investment meaning 18 months after the investing how much they've done on a paper in terms of return investment their lps ask that all the time which means that the traditional vcs which will push you to do a new fundraising every 18 months on average so that's sort of like what i call the you know vc world silicon valley type of startups very much startup tech tech heavy this is what i did more recently Before that, I was in more traditional private equity. And this is a very different world uh, because in this situation, you oftentimes you know, work with family-owned businesses. So basically, businesses that have been able to what they call grow boost, bootstrap, i.e. never really needing external capital, 
because they found a business model that just is profitable enough for them to grow the business without external capital, or they have invested from their own family money. But the bottom line is that they didn't have any other investors. And so these businesses are typically slower grower or you know more under the radar. They took like two to three times more time to build the business and reach certain scale. And then you have those private equity firms like TA, like Summit, like you know, you know, TPG, KKR, all of those you know big names that people have heard about that are trying to you know get a piece of the cake that is so unique because no one has never really invested in those companies. And so the way they will do it is that either they acquire a minority stake, right? Like less than 50%. The family or the founders still own the business, like more than 50%. In this situation, they will not, normally they will not put any debt on the business. But every, every dollar that is invested, it's not primary anymore. It's secondary. And so that's the time where the founders can actually take some money out. In the VC world, the, 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 the status quo is that you do many series A, B, 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 and then at some point you IPO, that's when you get your, your money out. In the PE world, you build a company slowly, you don't take any external, you own 100% of the business, and then someone comes in years later, invest, and you get some money out, and you have a minority partner on the table. And then you have the last, the last you know, type of transaction, which is the thing I've worked most on when I was a, a private equity investor, which is LBO. Leverage buyout, where you look at the business, you buy a majority, you put a bunch of debt and leverage on the business because the cash flow can afford paying down uh, the debt over time, and that's how they make like the you know the best returns uh, because you know of like some deleveraging maths. Uh, but it, the bottom line is that they put a lot of debt, take majority, and from operational uh, you know operational improvement of the business and the growth of the business, they can. Uh, like real estate, they can make uh, more value on the equity. So these are the, how I, the two worlds and within each world, you have different types of transactions, different types of entrepreneurs, these different types of stories. Uh, but I can get into more details if you want on any of those, but that's the high level. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for painting that picture for us. Um, dig a little bit on the, the LBO, right? The leveraged buyout. When like paint a paint a situation where this this is good because I I think I think it comes with maybe a connotation that I is it good is it bad is it who's it good for so yeah. in your experience you know give us give us a little bit more detail of the LBO in in how it works yeah so the LBO works in the following way you you have an investor let's say I'm an investor uh, I work at TA um, and you Josh have a company that does let's say 10 million of EBITDA uh, of profit. Uh, and let's say I value the business at 10 times your profit. So you, for me, you're worth $100 million. Uh, and I want to buy 100% of the business. So you want to cash out everything. You're going to be on your boat and I will, I will work and you know, um, change things. So the way I will do this is that I will look at the business. I will look at your cash flow profile. Are you very cash generative? Like, for example... Very cash flow generative business are software, for example, because they have very high gross margins. And so everything else, they basically don't have working cap um, and they barely have some capex. So the free cash flow is really attractive. So that's typically a situation where if Josh, you had a 10 million EBITDA um, you know, software business, I would put probably like 
four to six time of EBITDA of debt, right? Uh, and so the more I can put debt, the less I can put equity. And the idea is that once I want to sell, let's say the 100 becomes 200 in five years. Okay, so the company is only doubled in value from 100 to 200. But, you know, I put 60 of debt on the first stage and 40 of my equity. Let's say that the 60, I managed to pay down the debt over five years because you generate so much cash, right? Uh, I get, I get the, the, the 60 to, let's say, 20, which is probably doable. Uh, my equity suddenly becomes 200 minus 20, so 180. So while the company went from 100 to 200, my equity went from 40 to 180. Mm-hmm. And so my return investment is substantially more interesting than only the value. So that's like what... That's the goal of every private equity. That's the basics, basics of LBO. Now, of course, that's the ideal situation, right? The ideal situation where you did a good job in valuing the business well, you managed to grow it, you managed to get a better multiple at exit, you managed to deleverage the debt. And so that's in the best case scenario. Now, things can go sideways when you don't do a good job, when you don't give empowerment to the management team of your LBO, when you don't recruit well, and then the cash flow profile is deteriorating, and then you have your debt that you need to pay for. And then, of course, as you know, that can get to like very poor situations where you can actually lose your business just because of the debt. So the most important thing in LBOs, in a way, is to find a business in which you can come in and help the business in being better operationally. Mm-hmm. Don't go do an LBO if you think that you know things are already going well and you have nothing to do there. It can be a good opportunistic deal for you, but oftentimes where, where private equity you know, firms have really done very well is when they saw an opportunity to change you know, the way the business is operated because they have amazing people in the private equity team. They've done a lot of those deals in the past. They know how to do it. They come in. They help the management, they incentivize their management to do well because they can have like exponentially more returns. They uh, they do a bunch of things that make the operating of the business better and more efficient. That's how LBO works. But I think in my opinion, LBOs are, I know they're like not always good reputation because people think about it as like squeezing the juice as much as possible and changing the mentality of the business. It's going from a family business to like a private equity business. But at the end of the day, if you look at the stats, and there's a lot of you know market studies about it, private equity and particularly LBOs have been one of the biggest driver of um, employment uh, creation in, in, in the history. Uh, and so when you grow a business, um, you, know, you tend to hire more, you, net, you tend to invest more in people. And I think you know, stats have shown, and I'm not even creating this stat, I'm telling you, like there are like real studies there that show like actually like net 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 private equity has been very beneficial for the economy, even though you have some exceptions of things that didn't go as well. On a net basis, it's been a positive contributor to economic growth through the cycles. Yeah, awesome. So fast forward to where you are now. Um, and I definitely want to there's there's a few things that we need to get. Um we don't have much time left. I know. Um, man, gosh. One of the things that 
that I, I promised you and is one that will give people a chance to to learn about your business. But you said that there was something happened in your in your twenties that was like a pivotal thing for you. And um and that kind of like so it was it was something that was yeah, I'll just let you explain. You know, before we hit record, you you said something happened in my 20s and I was like, "Stop. Don't tell me anymore. Let's save it for That's recording." That's the cosmetic experience. That's okay. the one I talked about. Awesome. I'm glad I I'm glad I'm glad we got that across the plate. Um all right. So then now we get to talk about where you guys are at. So you've had all these experiences. You did some venture, you did private equity, you did you worked with some big family groups. You've done amazing stuff. You got bit by the entrepreneurial bug. Yeah. You started a business. Tell us about your business. Yeah. Amazing. So we've been around for two years, as I said. Um, we started a business with Brenton and Alex that I, I talked about earlier. And we really all got a, got really excited about the ability to innovate in the consumer space uh, through acquisitions, which is something that PNG, Unilever, and many other giant consumer companies that we all see around the world have been doing for the last 75 years. But with the only exception that have been doing it in the brick and mortar space and offline consumer space. So when the three of us got together in, call it like July 2020, we saw a ton of white space in what I call the creator economy uh, with consumer goods to do something similar with, uh, you know, something similar where you can leverage best-in-class practices in uh, merchandise, digital merchandising, best-in-class practices in, in digital marketing, best-in-class practices in M&A, and uh, technology building to create eventually a platform of consumer brands that we hope and really expect to be prominent on the digital shelf for many, many, many years to come. That was the real thesis. So today we have you know, a platform that is very much technology driven. Everything that we do is driven by a lot of technology. And this technology helps us identify, acquire, and then grow e-commerce consumer brands. And that's what we do. So we, we, we do deals all the time. Uh, and going back to the topic of this podcast, we buy e-commerce businesses from entrepreneurs from you know, the most random places around the world you know, every month. Super. And try to, do, try to do a better job than them, even though it's very hard because those entrepreneurs are just incredibly talented. And it takes a lot of time and effort from us even though we are a hundred and have a lot of technology, it takes a lot of time to take out their knowledge and get it to our brands so hard. But you know, that's what we try to do. What's the end game for you, right? You've you've gone through series, you've you've raised, you know, you've you've raised, you've built awesome team, hundred employees. You know, like what's what's the end game for you? Yeah. The end game for me and for us, you know, the vision for the three founders is to really build the next generation version of, you know, what a large CPG company looks like, right? In the traditional world, you know, before the e-commerce started really, you know, increase their penetration, the traditional CPG were basically like retail, brick and mortar, and nothing else. Uh, right now, we are in a world where data is our biggest friend and things are connected to a speed that, you know, you can't even imagine. And so today, our vision is that the new version of what a like what a group of CPG consumer brands should look like is a combination of e-commerce and traditional retail, but all of that fueled and powered by data. 
And data tells us a lot about each consumer. And the more we have data, the more we know how to best approach every consumer around the world with their willingness to pay, with their consumer habits, with all the things that you need to know about a consumer. And so my vision is that five, 10 years from now, we'll have like a group of, we are looking only at five specific verticals in the consumer world, which are pet, baby, uh, sports and outdoor, health and personal care, and home goods. Because those verticals are the ones we really believe in. Um, and we we hope to build a group in each of those verticals of you know, 10, 20, 30 um, you know, e-commerce brands that we can you know, build into world-class consumer brands and basically sell those products to anyone around the world, no matter where they shop, whenever they shop. That is awesome. Pets, babies, sports outdoors, personal care, and home goods. Those are the... Exactly. All right. So if there's an e-commerce um, founder out there who would like to have a conversation with you, what's a good place to connect with you and maybe do yeah. a deal? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are two ways. The easiest way is to go to our website. It's called forumbrands.com. Uh, there is uh, a form of contact us where basically the, the e-commerce entrepreneurs just put some details about their brand and we'll reach out no matter what, whether it's too small for us or whether it fits very well, uh, we'll reach out within 24 hours. Uh, that's like one way. The The more complicated way is to send me an email. Uh, and because I have a lot of emails, I'm not always very responsive. So it's ruben at forumbrands.com. Uh, but I would say like if, if they really want to reach out fast, uh, they should just go on the website. It's very easy. We'll also ask for some basic information. And, you know, if, if it fits very well, Josh, the process is very quick. So within 48 hours, we'll ask, you know, we'll jump on a call. Look, we, we talk with probably 15 to 20 sellers every week. Uh, and so we listen to the most crazy stories every week from 15 to 20 people. It's incredible. Um, and once we do this call, which oftentimes lasts 30 minutes, where half of it is listening to the founder's story, and the other half of it is presenting forum. Then if there's a fit, we'll ask for basic information about their PL, their, you know, some data about their Amazon account. And from there, you know, once we receive the data, within 48 hours, we send them back an LOI, a deal that we can do with them. And if they accept the deal, we sign the LOI. And within 30 to 45 days, we can close a deal and wire the money. Super, super cool. Um, Ruben, during this interview, there's probably a question I should have asked you that I completely screwed up and did not ask you. What is that question? Uh, um, maybe the the one thing for the listeners for you is like the maybe like the most important thing I've learned from building a business from zero to 100. Yeah. Um, and I think you mentioned that. So the answer to my to this question, you said it earlier. People. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of people in whatever you build. We were so lucky, so lucky to hire smarter people than us. And because of that, the company is doing well. It's not because of me. It's not because of the founders. It's not because of our vision. It's because of the engine of any machine that you build. And this engine is the people, not the founders. The founders give direction. 
the people build a company. This is important. Everyone that thinks that they change the world because they are the smartest or the most visionary, they're wrong. People are making great ideas, not founders. Yeah. And you mentioned one thing during the beginning of the interview that I promised I would uh, touch on too, is when you meet people on seizing opportunities, when you see it, give us a point, give us some advice, some wisdom from what you've learned on what to do and how to do that. Yeah. Two things. Very easy. I mean, very easy, depending on the personality of each of us. But two things important. One, when you meet people, no matter no matter where they're from, no matter what background they have, no matter what education they have, always be humble. Always be humble. Never consider yourself superior to anyone on earth because you don't know what you don't know. And so always come in with huge humility and people will see it and appreciate it and build a conversation with you because you will you will um, showcase trust. And that comes to the second point, which is once you showcase trust and once you have the conversation, actively listen to your audience. And when I say actively listen, is actually really caring about what they have to say. Trust me, once you go to conversation with those two in mind, first of all, you'll learn much more about things in life because you will digest more information. Number two, you will build better relationship. And if you combine number one and number two, you'll build your network and you'll get more opportunities. So the first one is being humble. And the second one, I wasn't listening. What's the second one? No, I'm just kidding. It's being listening, right? Listener. <laughs> <laughs> got it. No, I got it. All right. So uh, let's let's do this. We got to wrap up today. Uh, you're awesome, man. By the way, uh, fellow deal makers in the audience, as always, reach out to our guests. Say thanks for being on the show. If you have one of these uh, businesses and you want to start a conversation with Ruben and and with his team, uh, his contact information will be in the show notes. Once again, this is the purpose and mission of the show is to put deals and deal makers together. Um, if you have a deal and you'd like to come on the show and talk about it, head over to thedealscout.com, fill out a quick form, and we'll get you on the show next. Till then, talk to you all on the next episode. Bye, everybody.